electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Contessa Brewer, and for Brian Sullivan tonight, Bill Ackman, Warren Buffett, now Elon Musk weigh in on the great bond debate of 2023. As dust piles up in empty offices, which parts of the country still refuse to return to work? DraftKings shares soar on an earnings beat, how America's appetite for sports betting seems to be growing relentlessly. Former President Trump arraigned in the nation's capital. Could it actually help him raise money? Plus... Are earnings calls outdated? How some companies are exploring new ways to share financial results and some are firmly sticking to uh, tradition. That much more, Last Call is up right now. We begin last call tonight with a tale of two tech titans, more than $4 trillion tied up in Apple and Amazon, and shares of each heading in opposite directions tonight. Apple is falling after hours. Revenue from iPhone sales a tad lighter than expected. Shares of Amazon are popping on a big beat. The company reported its strongest quarterly profit in a year and a half. Together, these two companies represent 10% of the S&P 500, and we have full CNBC team coverage now. Steve Kovac is live outside Apple's headquarters in Cupertino, California. Let's begin tonight with Deirdre Bosa on Amazon's big quarter. Dee, what did you learn? Big quarter and big gains in the after hours. The takeaway from Amazon is really two things, efficiency and stabilization. And that is leading to those massive gains of nearly 10% in the after hours. Our audience might remember that Amazon spent more than any other big cap tech company during the pandemic to double its logistics footprint. That led to a couple quarters of losses, and it came at a time when growth at its very profitable cloud business, AWS, was slowing, double whammy. Now, however, it is reaping the rewards of that investment in terms of efficiency and delivery speed, and it's seeing stabilization in the cloud. On top of that, it may have to spend less now on capital expenditures. Those are the big purchases that companies make to prepare for the future. Cloud rivals, Microsoft and Google, we heard from them both last week, and they said that their CapEx is going to go up as they prepare to take advantage of the AI boom. Amazon, on its earnings call that finished up not too long ago, says that it expects its own CapEx to be less than the number it was in 2022, so a rare decreasing. Speaking of AI, CEO Andy Jassy, he spent a lot of time discussing the strategy on the call. Have a listen. Generative AI has captured people's imagination, but most people are talking about the application layer, specifically what OpenAI has done with ChatGPT. It's important to remember that we're in the very early days of the adoption and success of generative AI, and that consumer applications is only one layer of the opportunity. So here he's really reiterating the point that he and AWS chief Adam Slipsy have made often over the last few months. We are still early. And Contessa, I feel like I've heard this Amazon AI pitch so many times I can recite it from memory. Three layers. One is compute. Two is large language models as a service. Three is applications like ChatGPT. Amazon wants to, quote, 
democratize access to generative AI, questions as to whether that message is getting through in the same way. But when it comes to monetizing generative AI, less clear. Jassy was asked a few times on the call directly about monetizing when they're actually going to see dollars come through for the shift. And he really used it as an opportunity to talk about how they're incorporating AI across the business, but he did leave out any hard numbers. Not too much of a shift there. If you're not NVIDIA, it's hard to still at this early stage quantify. I, you know, there is so much focus in the investment community on anything other than what was Amazon's core business. But a lot of people who are paying attention to Amazon might want to know, what does it indicate about the consumer? What are they seeing about American consumer behavior and what it indicates in the second half of this year? Contessa, that is such a great question. We tend to focus on things like cloud and advertising, but Amazon is an e-commerce giant. It is the biggest, it's still growing, and it just spent the last few years, like I said, doubling this network, and they've been touting recently the speeds, record speeds at which they are getting products to consumers. So they are making strides here. Again, this is this is a business that isn't nearly as profitable as some of the others, which is why we don't necessarily talk about them as much from an investor point of view. But, you know, they did talk about the consumer and the CFO, uh, Brian Olsalski, said that in terms of habits, what he's seeing is similar to what he see, saw at the beginning of the year. And that is people are still trading down. They're looking for discounts. They're looking for deals. But when that shifts, he says that Amazon is ready because of all that money that they put in its logistics network, something they call regionalization, which is why, I don't know if you've noticed, you may be getting your stuff faster than you were previously. Yeah, I for sure did. And, and I, that made me feel better about the price that I pay for Prime because it was supposed to be free two-day shipping. And it's not always that. One and overnight. Yeah, these are the areas which they, you know, they're kind of bragging about. It's faster than ever. Deirdre, thank you. Apple just wrapped up its earnings call as shares continue to fall after hours. And CNBC's Steve Kovac has more from Cupertino, California. Hi, Steve. Hey, Coop. Hey there. Look, Apple beating expectations for the quarter, but stock falling after it predicted yet another quarter of declining sales. That didn't make it four in a row, Contessa. Revenue for the third quarter was down 1% to $81.8 billion. But iPhone revenues, that missed slightly, bringing in $39.6 billion in revenue. But the real story, Contessa, it was services showing growth reaccelerating and a new record up 8% year on year to $21.21 billion. Still, investors hoping for a return to sales growth were disappointed, sending Apple shares lower after the company implied this September quarter sales would fall about 1%. Now, Apple did say iPhone and services sales will accelerate again in the September quarter, though that will be offset by a steep decline in Mac and iPad sales. Apple blaming tough compares from a year ago due to factory shutdowns in China last summer. Now, I also caught up with Tim Cook on these results and talked to him a little bit about these record services numbers before we had heard some headwinds in advertising and gaming at the App Store. Here's what he told me, quote, Advertising has definitely accelerated from before, and the App Store has definitely accelerated from before. So some reversal of those trends. And then, of course, I picked his brain a bit on AI at Apple, a little bit of a different strategy here. Here's what he told me about that. Quote, we've been doing research on AI and machine learning, including generative AI, for years. And we're going to continue investing and innovating and rolling these things into products that enrich people's lives. He also told me products like that Vision Pro headset wouldn't even be possible without artificial intelligence. 
And of course, Contessa, I had to ask Tim Cook about that Fitch credit rating downgrade here in the U.S. after we heard from Warren Buffett and others. Here's what he told me. It's not something I'm deeply concerned about, Contessa. We've heard that uh, over and over from a lot of industry leaders. Steve, thank you for the good work out there in California. Thanks. For more on tonight's big earnings, what it means for your money, let's bring in tech and VC investor and CEO of RSE Ventures, Matt Higgins, also an investor on Shark Tank. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having call. me. Okay, so first of all, let, talk to me about Amazon and your takeaway from Amazon's earnings. Look, it was obviously a great beat, and I think the market breathed a sigh of relief because there were some that were expecting the decline in AWS to continue. There was word that maybe they'd end up at 10%. Below 9 would have been a, sent the stock probably into a free fall, and then lo and behold, it was 12%. And the reason why that's so important is 70% of Amazon's profit comes from AWS. If you were picking between buying in on Amazon now or buying in on Apple, which would you choose? Am I allowed to do none of the above? Yeah. Okay. I would do none of the above. But first, let's start. If I had to choose, I would choose Amazon because at the end of the day, Amazon has more levers to pull than Apple. Apple's fundamentally a, a hardware company. 60% of its revenues from hardware, $3 trillion stock. You know, it's, it's hard to see tremendous gains from here. Amazon has more optionality, but overall, I choose none of the above. Wait, but we just heard from Steve that they had a record for services, $21.21 billion, up 8%. And the services tend to be steady quarter to quarter. They don't see the same kind of seasonality. If you're seeing that kind of growth, do you just discount that for Apple? I do uh, discount it for Apple. Honestly, I think it's, it's the Tim Cook is not necessarily known for his spin, but I think it's the attempt of shining a light on that. The reality is the next iPhone release is going to tell a big story. The consumer's under pressure. Are they going to be going into their pocket to buy another phone? It's the kind of thing you could easily defer. So There is so much enthusiasm and buzz around uh, the new iPhone 15 that's anticipated to, co to come out, and so much attention that is paid on those of us who are still carrying around our iPhone 10s or even older models, and we haven't updated, and it seems like this could be the time when we're going to finally shell out the cash or, or, or get lured into it by our phone companies. Does that not factor into your uh, takeaway? No, it could still happen, but at the end of the day, Apple's trading at 30 times for future earnings, forward earnings, and it's a hardware company, and we're going into a period where the American consumer is going to be under pressure. Let's talk a little about, a bit about the consumer. What did you take away from Apple and Amazon about where we're heading? There's been, again, this reversal of pessimism. We're seeing Bank of America changing its outlook. And, and we heard it from Oppenheimer earlier this week. So where do you think the American consumer is going based on the earnings reports we've seen? I, I think it's fascinating that you have all these uh, economists and, and analysts at banks now running from their neg negative projections. Uh, I think at the end, they're going to regret that. Uh, Why? Th because, the, because uh, first of all, the uh, consumer is 70% of GDP. They're paying credit cards at 24% interest rate. We're still spending the contrails of stimulus spending. Uh, the reality is if inflation gets to 2%, most economists agree unemployment will be between 5 and 7%. That's millions of jobs that we're going to lose. And I don't think the market is pricing in a soft landing. They're, they're pricing in no landing. We also didn't ask our team uh, for Amazon and Apple about this, but you've got a bunch of college kids that are going to start repaying on college debt coming out. You have to think that that's going to have an impact. We've heard from Target and others that they anticipate an impact from that. It's going to have a huge impact. Mm. I mean, the fact that, of course, the Biden administration is signaling they're not going to you know, implement the harsh penalties. But nonetheless, I think the bigger picture issue is that American consumers laboring under a mountain of debt. And eventually those bills come due. AI. Okay. We heard Steve Kovac just say that that the Vision Pro headset would not be possible without AI. But do you think that Apple is a bit of a laggard 
on AI? I actually don't. I think it's fascinating. A, a tale of two press releases. If you look at <laughs> you look at Amazon, Jassy finally embraced, like, I got to say AI a lot. And so in the quote, it says slew, slew of uh, AI applications. Uh, Apple, Tim Cook, I believe, didn't mention the word once in his transcript. I hear and sense that they might have something seriously stealthy going on in the, uh, in the walls of Apple working on Ajax. I don't know what that is, but I know it's their in-house chat GPT. Some say maybe a chat GPT killer is coming from Apple. So I think it's Apple doing what Apple does. We're going to do it on our own pace. Matt, I love having you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Here is what happened to your money today. The Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ. As you can see, we ended down slightly on all three, but fractionally. The biggest winner of the day was Clorox, up 9%. Strong earnings. And for the biggest loser, Expedia Group fell more than 16%. Expedia missed on revenues and bookings. And let's take a look at futures, see how things are shaping up for tomorrow. There's our live view. Yay! <laughs> futures. I don't know. It looks like uh, we're, oh, we're higher. There we go. Wait. How about this? We're all in the green. The magic of television right before your eyes, everybody. We'll keep an eye on that throughout the hour. Up next, former President Trump pleading not guilty to several charges. Will his indictment actually help him raise more money? Plus, we've heard from Wall Street titans like Warren Buffett and Bill Ackman. What does Elon Musk think about the state of government bonds? More on what he said when Last Call returns. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Time for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. And first up, electric truck maker Nikola announced it won shareholder approval to issue new stock. The vote paves the way for the company to raise additional funds to support key parts of its business. That includes the launch of its fuel cell powered electric semi truck and the build out of a hydrogen refueling network in the U.S. and Canada. Nikola's founder and former CEO had lobbied against the proposal. Shares of Nikola are lower by half a percent after hours. Next up, shares of Tupperware on the move again. They're surging in after hours trading after the company announced a debt restructuring agreement. Tupperware has had a remarkable run. The stock is up more than 400 percent over the past two weeks. Similar moves that we've seen from other meme stops like Bed Bath & Beyond, which of course now was, has been bought for branding purposes by Overstock.com. Look at Tupperware, though, down. Uh, oh, look at this, 90% in extended hours. <whistles> Former President Trump pled not guilty today to charges he conspired to overturn the 2020 election results. CNBC's Eamon Javers has been following the progress of this case and joins us now. Eamon, what did you see in Washington, D.C.? Hi there, Contessa. The former president of the United States pled not guilty to all four counts against him in a federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. this afternoon during a brief arrangement hearing that lasted less than an hour. A federal magistrate judge informed the former president of his right to remain silent and his right to a lawyer at the outset of the event. And as the proceeding came to a close, Trump agreed to certain conditions of his release, including that he not attempt to influence jurors and that he not communicate with any known witnesses in the case. The judge also told him that violating the conditions of his release could lead to an arrest warrant and detention, potentially. 
Now, on his way back to his New Jersey golf club, the former president stopped to talk to reporters and denounced the proceedings against him today. This is a persecution of a political opponent. This was never supposed to happen in America. This is the persecution of the person that's leading by very, very substantial numbers in the Republican primary and leading Biden by a lot. So if you can't beat him, you persecute him or you prosecute him. And just something I noticed here, take a look at just how much Trump's legal worlds overlap. And the aide handing Trump his umbrella today at Reagan National Airport, that's Walt Nauta, you see, holding up the umbrella as the former president gets out of the uh, SUV there. He's Trump's personal staffer. He's also his co-defendant in the other federal case against Trump involving Trump's alleged retention of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. So all these worlds overlapping, Walt Nauta, the co-defendant there, uh, showing up next to Trump today. So this begins a new phase of the 2024 presidential campaign in which Trump now campaigns as far and away the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination, even as he must schedule court hearings and trial dates amid presidential debates and campaign travel. We have never seen anything quite like that in American history, but it's unclear how much it'll, or if at all, it'll impact the trajectory of the GOP primary where Trump has that commanding lead or in the general election where very early, very early polls show Trump and President Biden in a tight matchup. The next hearing in this case, Contessa, speaking of scheduling, will be held on August 28th, but Trump may not have to attend that one in person like he did today. Back over to you. Okay, so if you'll stay with me, Eamon, I want you to be part of this next discussion. Former President Trump's indictments could mean good news for his campaign fundraising efforts. Take a look at the past indictments. His first indictment and court appearance in April led to a major boost in individual donations to the Trump campaign. This is according to FEC data. His second indictment in June also led to a big boost in donors for the former president's 2024 campaign. And the former president is already looking to raise money on the third indictment. The Trump campaign offered a Stand with Trump t-shirt, noting the date of the most recent indictment that can be bought for a donation of $47. The question with today's court appearance, another indictment potentially coming in Georgia, can the 45th president keep up this campaign fundraising momentum. Joining me now is former Republican National Committee Communications Director Doug High, uh, who's also a Republican strategist, and of course, Eamon Javers for this as well. Doug, let me begin with you. Are you surprised that Trump has been able to turn what seems to be an obstacle and a major serious, these are serious charges, these hurdles, into a political opportunity? Not at all, and that's, that's for a lot of reasons. One, it seems that the normal political laws of gravity apply to everybody but Donald Trump. What's bad news for Donald Trump, or what's bad news for anybody else, is good news usually for Donald Trump. And two, we've seen so many times of where I would say the revolution must be monetized. We saw it with the Trump Hotel, and we're certainly seeing it now that any bad news that Donald Trump has, he's able to monetize and raise money on because ultimately, and this is a bit of um, flying upside down here, is what we see is, Every indictment essentially reinforces Trump's core message, which is the system's rigged. It's rigged against me and it's rigged against you. And I'm a martyr for you. And whether that's true or not, and I'd argue it's not true, that certainly reinforces the message. And as his opponents 
those Republicans who are ostensibly running against Donald Trump in the Republican primary really hold back on attacking him. It allows Trump that room to go to these voters time and time again, whether they're giving $10, $100 or more. Let's show the campaign fundraising for his opponents now. I mean, you've got uh, DeSantis clearly in the in the lead. Um, Joe Biden just trailing him and then others who are fundraising significantly. But how did these indictments, Amen? I mean, are you seeing now some of these other Republican candidates, Amen, trying to dip their toe into the water about the systems rigged, some, playing up some of the same arguments that Trump is making? Well, yeah, look, I mean, Donald Trump has sort of mastered the uh, art, the political art of all attention being good attention, no matter whether it's a negative event or a positive event, turning these negative events that would be very damaging to any other candidate into these fundraising opportunities. I've got a question for Doug, though, Contessa, if you don't mind. Yeah. I mean, Doug, you know, you, Mike Pence is out there as the former vice president running against his old boss and taking a very hard line, saying that this is a, a guy who doesn't deserve to be in the Oval Office anymore based on what he did on January 6th. Mike Pence has a big rally coming up tomorrow night in New Hampshire. He's simultaneously running against Donald Trump and the most significant witness in this case that got Donald Trump indicted today. So he's a witness for the prosecution, so to speak, in this case. That's a deeply conflicted place for Pence to be. How does he leverage this? Or can he? Or is, is it just a hopeless political case for him? Well, since we started talking about fundraising, Mike Pence has a T-shirt today, too. And it says, you're too honest, the quote that Donald Trump had about him. They're selling T-shirts on this. And that's so Mike Pence can get donors necessary for him to uh, qualify for this first debate uh, coming up in a couple weeks in Milwaukee. It's obviously a very dif difficult place for Pence to be. It also highlights why he's the biggest all-star witness that perhaps we've ever seen um, in any kind of a trial, and not just because of what Mike Pence may or may not say, but what Mike Pence may or may not have recorded on January 6th, January 5th, and those days leading up to uh, the insurrection that we saw. His testimony is going to be very important, as are his written words, because he was taking notes the whole time. Doug, do you think that Trump's fundraising now is focused on all individual contributions? Do you think that indictment after indictment makes him too hot to handle for even the boldest of corporate giving? Uh, for corporate giving, it's obviously a very different question. And what we've seen with Trump is two things. One, he's been individual donors, uh, a lot of them very small donors who are giving small, small checks at a time, but they do so uh, repeatedly. Also, we've seen that it's taken a big chunk out of what we would think that his campaign fundraising would be for, which were political operations to fund uh, get out the vote efforts and, and voter targeting in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, especially. This is cutting into that. So we see sort of two tracks here. He's not able to do politically what he normally would be able to do, but his lead is so much he may not need to be able to do so. And two, that certainly there's a shying away of, uh, of corporate money. And you can't give money directly from a corporation, but PACs certainly can. You're seeing a, a hesitation with that. And here's the other thing, um, Eamon and, and Contessa, I'd say. We're talking about this in the context of an indictment being good news for Donald Trump, which obviously is, is a bit bizarre politically. Let's also talking about the immediate term and the short term for how it benefits Donald Trump. In the long term, those voters in 2016 who supported Donald Trump, but in 2020 voted for Joe Biden, places like Arizona and Georgia especially, mm -hmm. they did so, they switched because they're tired of all the drama. What are we seeing right now? A lot of drama, and none of that helps uh, Donald Trump if he's the nominee for Republicans going into 2024. Doug Amen. Thank you, gentlemen.
Thank you. Still ahead, two big-time investors weighing in on the bond market. And then there's Elon Musk. He's chiming in, too. We dive into where government bonds go from here next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Last Call. Billionaires are weighing in on the bond market. First, Warren Buffett, not worried. He told CNBC's Becky Quick, Berkshire bought $10 billion in U.S. Treasuries last Monday. We bought $10 billion in Treasuries this Monday. And the only question for next Monday is whether we buy $10 billion in two-month or six-month. Bill Ackman, the founder and CEO of Pershing Square Capital, also chimed in, taking to X, you know, used to be Twitter, to announce he's shorting 30-year Treasury bonds as he believes yields may soon hit, get this, 5.5%. He has since further clarified his view, saying Buffett would never buy 30-year Treasuries at anywhere near current yields. He went on to add that both he and Buffett are investing cash in short-term Treasuries. But a couple hours ago, Elon Musk then joined in on the fray on X, of course, saying short-term T-bills are a no-brainer. Where you stand, Treasury yields are surging, including the longer-term ones, nearing some of their highest levels since November. So what's behind the bond route? Is it Fitch? Is it the deficit? Is it the nervousness ahead of tomorrow's jobs report? Joining us now, Bond Block's investment management co-founder, Joanna Galagos, and Bleakley Financial Group Chief Investment Officer, Peter Bookbar. He's also a CNBC contributor. Good to see you both. Joanna, what's fueling the bond sell-off? Well, I think that what you've seen in this this last year, ever since um, you know late 2022, is investors have been using the Treasury market to park their cash, and they can't ignore the yields that you just described. So, I think what you're you're seeing is just a lot of attention to the Treasury market because it's a very easy way. Not only if you're using it as a cash alternative, but as you want to sort of move into other risk assets during the year, you can move out the curve without taking any other credit risk. So that's really what's going on here. But I know there, there are a lot of people who are anxiously waiting for that jobs report, because if it comes in strong, it's an indication that the economy has a lot of steam behind it. And that could mean that we're in for much more Fed tightening and more rate hikes. Uh, Peter, at what point do, do the yield levels become a real problem for equity investors? Well, I think we got a taste of that. Uh, we had a sell-off when the 10-year yield went above 4%. And we've seen this week, uh, with it going higher, it exaggerated the selling. I think the biggest news is what the Bank of Japan did. The Bank of Japan is the last major central bank holdout in tightening monetary policy in response to the inflation we have. They were the author of QE, the author of zero interest rates, and now they're finally catching up. And I think that their news at the end of July of widening yield curve control up to 1% was a really big deal and really created a mini earthquake throughout major global bond markets. What does that capitulation mean to you? Well, I think that long rates are going higher. We're going to have this bear steepener, and it's not for good reason because the BOJ is doing what they're doing. At the same time, the Fed's embarking on QT, essentially selling treasuries. The treasury itself has massive amounts of issuance. Banks don't have much balance sheet capacity to absorb a lot of that. 
So there's a lot. The clearing price I'm worried about in the 10-year yield and even the third year is 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 higher than, than, than it is. And it's not because growth is going to speed up. It's for these, like I said, negative reasons. And I think that's going to create uh, a problem here for sovereign bonds around the world because yeah. we're all highly correlated. You know, Fitch thinks our national debt is a problem. This was part of why it downgraded our credit. Last year, the U.S. paid roughly, say, $500 billion to service this debt. We are approaching now a trillion dollars in a year. Joanna, when do the costs associated with debt and rising rates become troubling to you? So I think it's hard to um, look back. We just really have to think about 2023. And you have to think about all the things that the market has absorbed in 2023. Bank failures, debt ceiling crisis, this downgrade. But what has been a common thread in 2023, and we just, I would say investors are probably need to pay more attention to, is the consistency of actually the resilience of at least the U.S. economy. There, um, the fact that rates are now appearing to be higher for longer. And as well, there is strength in corporate balance sheets that continues to persist and to be observed. And so there's been a lot of opportunity across fixed income assets and across equity assets that investors haven't taken advantage of. And I would say like the pressures that we're seeing seem to be, con- the only thing that seems to be consistent is some of this, this resiliency and this continuation that doesn't show as much weakness as everybody expected this year. So I think that's a perspective that's very important. Those three things have continued to show up. Joanna, Peter, thank you. Still ahead, which regions of the country are rushing back to the office and which just aren't? Could it have something to do with, I don't know, beaches? Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Pandemic's in the rear view, but it ushered in a lasting trend, working from home. Workplace analytics company Basking has data indicating the popularity of remote work could depend where in the country you live. So far in 2023, workers in the Midwest spent the most amount of time back in the office with an average weekly occupancy of 60%. People in the Northeast spent the least amount of time in person with just a 24% average weekly occupancy rate. Joining me now is RXR chairman and CEO and board member of the New York Fed, Scott Reckler. Scott, good to see you. To what might you attribute the regional differences in return to office? Yeah, you know, I I think, you know, the numbers also are skewed by how many days people are coming to the office. Because if you look at the Northeast and you think about people that are coming two to three days, you know, that's 42 percent, which is pretty close to where the Midwest is. I would say that uh, you know New York has really seen a return to the office more than most places in the Northeast right now. Most of our clients are the three-day a week, and after uh, uh, Labor Day, they're talking about going to four days a week. One thing that might skew this though is Washington D.C. You know, you might recall uh, the President Biden uh, at the State of the Union made the point that he was going to bring back the federal workers to the office, and that really has gotten caught in the studies and bureaucracies. And the agencies right now are back only 10 to 20 percent. And so that could really be skewing some of the stats uh, in the Northeast. But in New York, we're seeing people come back uh, to the office again, working differently. Hybrid works here to stay. Some buildings will do better than others in that circumstance. But uh, I, I would have uh, you know, high degree of confidence that we're finding our way to that new normal. The last call team was also speculating that 
what you pay to get into the office might have an impact. The tolls, uh, the bridges, New York City is considering a congestion fee uh, to keep automobiles out of Manhattan. And all of that might tend to start playing a part in how many times do you want to go to the office if it's going to cost you 30 bucks just to get in and out? That being said, we've seen all the speculation about commercial real estate, rising rates with empty offices. The REIT stocks, though, are seeing a very strong month here. You're seeing some big performance. Uh, Vornado, Hudson Pacific, SL Green, they all see big returns this month. So why are investors so bullish here if the return to office rates remain somewhat lackluster? So I think office in general, right, we have the structural issue of, of this hybrid work that we discussed, but you also have the issue of, of higher uh, interest rates and this flight to quality. And I think what's happened on the REIT stock specifically uh, was Esso Green um, actually sold an interest in a building 245 Park Avenue. Um, everyone has been very bearish on office. They sold that at, a, at, a, at a, a good price, had some structure around it, but it was good news. And I think it gave people a sense that the sentiment that the market has about office is worse than the reality. I mean, if you look at us, for example, we're right now working on investing $1.2 billion of equity into 5 million square feet of Manhattan office buildings. Uh, because if you, you know, everyone's painting every building with the same brush. Sure. But the reality is there's certain buildings that are going to do very well on the other side of uh, this recovery. And so if you can buy them today at these dislocated prices, it's an extraordinary entry point. Can I get you to weigh in a little bit on what we've seen on the bond action, uh, the sell-off in bonds and, and, the, and the rising yields and the predictions of what's to come? Do you think that the credit downgrade and concerns over America's debt are a factor there? Do you think that the jobs report coming out tomorrow and some bracing of what the Fed reaction might be are playing a role? Yeah, I think I think Peter said it well, right, which is a little bit of what happened with, with Japan. The, the You're also seeing a significant amount of treasuries being sold uh, to deal with the with the, the debt that's out there. At the same time, we're having the quantitative tightening. Um, you know, I, I got a report today on the um, the impacts post the, the Fitch downgrade. And if you really look at the market, uh, the view is that it had almost no impact to where treasuries are trading. So the downgrade, I don't think, is what's in the mix here. But I, I will say, you know, the, this is we are in the world of higher rates for longer, right? And I think that the 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 equity markets, I think, have gotten a little bit uh, complacent of feeling that the the things are turning around more quickly. And we've been here before, where people say, you know, this time is different. There's not going to be a recession. Uh, and the reality is, I heard that in 1989. I heard that in 2001. I heard that in 2007. And it's 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 different until it's not different, and we have a recession. When you have rates this high and you have an inverted yield curve, it's only a matter of time. Now, what's interesting in this cycle is more homeowners and businesses locked in longer. So we, we haven't seen their rates yet tick up. So the impact of monetary tightening hasn't yet hit the economy as quickly as it might have. But when you start looking at 24 and 25 and the amount of corporate debt that needs to be refinanced and real estate loans that need to be refinanced, that's where you're going to see the weight of these high interest rates really impact the broader economy. Yeah, that, that corporate debt piece of the this um, is worthy of more attention. Scott Reckler, Absolutely. thank you so much for coming on with us. Thanks for having me. Coming up, why earnings calls? Why are they just calls? Why so many companies are shying away from video for crucial presentations to Wall Street investors and analysts? 
and shareholders and journalists. We'll be right back. Let's get to our last call watch list. We are keeping an eye on shares of DraftKings after hours. They are jumping uh, as the sports betting company beat on revenue with a smaller loss per share than expected. Look at that. The shares up in extended trading 13 percent. It's showing some real growth in its sports betting business. Customers are spending more even as states legalize wagering on sports. The company says demand in older markets, what they mean is that more mature markets that legalize first, is generating more than enough cash to fund investments in new states. We'll keep an eye on that. Next up, a different earnings story with Block. Jack Dorsey's payments company, which owns Square and Cash App, is seeing shares fall in after-hours trading, despite boosting its earnings forecast in a big way. Block warned of a slowdown this past month in profit growth. Despite the drop, there were some positives to take from this report. Its cash app business is going strong. 54 million monthly active users in June. Block's Bitcoin holdings made it some money in the past quarter. And speaking of crypto, Coinbase reported after the bell as well. The crypto trading platform narrowed its losses much more than Wall Street was expecting. But expectations were pretty low for Coinbase. Revenue fell along with crypto trading volume. The stock is lower in after hours. There are some regulatory concerns still hanging over the company and dominating most of the earnings call. Those shares off by almost a percent in extended trade. It is one of the busiest earnings weeks of the year, of course, and we're keeping a close eye on the companies that work on cloud computing and artificial intelligence and crypto and next-gen technology. And yet... Their earnings calls just aren't changing with the post-pandemic time. Every quarter, an army of analysts, investors, and journalists register or phone in for corporate earnings calls that sound and look like this. Greetings and welcome to the fiscal year 2023 earnings conference call. In this post-pandemic era, when we all migrated to video conferencing, earnings calls are still calls. It's a head scratcher because ultimately in this world of next generation technology, companies, 98, 99% of them still use telephones and conference calls like they did 25 years ago. Alphabet's not hosting a video conference on Google Meet, nor Cisco on WebEx. Microsoft, where's your team's spirit? I mean, sure, some bold companies push their earnings calls onto video streaming platforms. Walmart's earnings are on YouTube. Welcome to Walmart's fiscal year 2024 first quarter earnings call. It's a slate with sound. Netflix hosts a quarterly video earnings interview with a couple specially chosen analysts to take part. Cybersecurity companies like Palo Alto and Checkpoint host real video conference calls, and analysts turn on their cameras to ask their questions. Three years post-pandemic, I think folks have gotten used to being on camera and actually appreciate the, the engagement that that provides. And I think it provided a venue for, for more connection. They could see our executives on camera and engage in Q&A. And of course, Zoom. And as Kelly mentioned, we will now move into the Q&A session. Q4 hosts 1,500 companies' earnings calls every quarter. Nanocaps all the way up to mega are, are, are using basically the same systems and same technology. How many are choosing the, the option for video? Uh, so less than 4%. So it is a handful. Like I can count on my fingers and toes. Why? Do you want the honest answer? 
because that's always the way we've done them, and we've never thought about doing them any other way. Q4 tells me that's the number one reason companies tell its sales team, no thanks, we're not moving to video, that and they want to do what everybody else does. I did reach out to all of the companies I mentioned in my story and more to ask whether they had considered video. Most didn't get back to me, but one company told me they just think it's better to allow analysts to focus on voice while they're crunching numbers and updating models and looking at slides. Kip Meitzer is the head of global investor relations at Checkpoint Software Technologies, which I mentioned in my story there. You use video calls. What's working for you, Kip? Thank you for uh, having me, Contessa. I'll tell you, we do it, and uh, it, it's a big hit. Uh, we we actually, I was a little reticent at first, but our CEO uh, insisted on it. He likes to adopt new things. Um, and for us, it's uh, it, I think it gives us a closer bond with our analysts, our investors. And uh, for us, you know, it's it's a it's a back and forth. And there's always going to be errors or bloopers. And I, I think that actually uh, uh, contributes to the camaraderie with our analysts. You're one of a handful of companies that I found who does it. Kip, thank you for your time. My Coming pleasure. up, a new superconductor has Wall Street buzzing. Could this usher in a new era for technology? One analyst already has a note out on how best to invest in the space. Stay with us. A quick check here on Tupperware shares that have been on a tear this past month. The stock is soaring after hours on a restructuring plan. Look at this, 91% rise in share price in extended trading on massive volume. 91 million shares trading hands in after hours. Let's take a look, guys, at the last month here. More than 700% rise in shares. Clearly, these are meme stock traders driving up the stock price. Massive amount of short interest on the household name. We will continue to watch this through the overnight and have an update for you on Worldwide Exchange early tomorrow. Yesterday, we talked about the massive hype and skepticism surrounding LK99. It's a one-of-a-kind superconductor. Reportedly, it works at room temperature. Really big deal. An analyst from Jeffrey's Financial Group even released a note saying this product would be disruptive for a wide range of industries, but not without a caveat. It has to be real, and it has to be able to be mass-produced. Joining me now for more on the potentially groundbreaking discovery, the Jeffrey's analyst who wrote that piqued our interest, Nick Chang. Hi, Nick. Hello. Thank you for having me today. Yes. Why do you think that this LK99 is worth your time and attention? What's driving your interest in it? Okay, so they published this note, uh, this paper like last week, and uh, the the method of making this material is actually super easy. It can be made within a week or something. So, uh, like research, uh, researchers around the world has been working on this to verify it, like uh, in the past few days, and we now see some promising uh, results coming from the national labs in the United States and also for, from some universities back in uh, in China, where I am. So that's why I feel uh, there is some possibility that uh, this LK99 might be a real thing, although it will still need some more investigation. Right. So so it hasn't been peer reviewed. There has been some skepticism. But this has been sort of like mm -hmm. the gold standard for superconductors if you could do it without the extra pressure and at temperatures that are not freezing. That being said, 
what kind of disruption could it be, not just for superconductors, but in other industries? You, you sort of alluded to that. Yes, the, uh, it can impact pretty much every industry that will involve like using electricity, including from EVs to uh, transportation system, from power grid, and to uh, let's say even for your smartphone in your, in your pocket. If you're it is using superconductor, you will reduce the power uh, uh, the the power consumption or increase the power efficiency. So that would change pretty much every industry uh, that uses like electricity. Nick and also, they would definitely like add to some technology, like say quantum computing. Oh, so new technology stuff. Listen, Nick Chang, it's great of you to join us. I know you had to get up really early. It's fascinating to think about the what ifs, but the if I understand if it's real. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate that. Do you know what happened 46 years ago tonight? One of the most popular James Bond movies hit the theaters. Can you swim? <gasps> who can forget that scene from The Spy Who Loved Me? It featured the iconic white lotus esprit that turned into a submarine. Fun fact here, Elon Musk actually bought that car at an auction in 2013 for nearly a million dollars. Anyway, The Spy Who Loved Me was one of many 007 blockbusters. In total, the 25 Bond films raked in more than $7.6 billion at the global box office. All right, big day of earnings today, including the biggest of them all, Apple, and then we had Amazon as well. Let's see how futures are trading now before we head to our evening sign-off here. We're seeing green across the board. S&P 500 indicated to open up by two-tenths of a percent. Dow Jones by a tenth of a percent. And the NASDAQ, three-tenths of a percent. That's your last call for tonight. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Happy nearly Friday. Shark Tank is next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.